but they are more accurate and they can shoot further. And they're frankly, they're faster to put up and take down than the Russian conventional artillery. And they've been able to use that to great effect. I don't know if that tank was killed by a top-down munition or if it was killed by a uh, artillery strike. Looks like there was a lot of damage around it. The top didn't blow off, so that's uh, <laughs> that's a small victory for the Russians. But beyond that, it, it died just the same. Oh, and now we've got a bunch of hands up. So let's see if we can swing through some of those folks. Nico, start. Yeah, thanks. Uh... My question is about the uh, Suhoi 25 and then Gamov helicopter. So how about the air defense? How successful has this been? So you're talking about the Su-25s um, for the Russian side, right? Yeah, Su-25 okay. uh, aircraft and then the Gamov helicopters, attack helicopters. Yeah, it- Yeah, so we've seen both of those get shot down. Um, SU-25, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's an SU-24, and I get them confused all the time. As with the 27s, I'm not an aviation buff. SU-25 is like a ground attack uh, aircraft. Similar, the is very broad strokes, what we would use the A-10 for here in America. You know, it has a big gun. It shoots things at the ground. It kills enemies. Uh, the Kamal helicopter, if you're talking about the KA-52, That's uh, one of Russia's more modern helicopters, and it's very easily distinguished because it has two helicopter blades stacked on top of each other. They've both been shot down. Um, in fact, two of those helicopters, and these are, again, one of Russia's, if not Russia's most modern helicopter, one of them, uh, maybe the next one up. They've been shot down from everything from uh, you know, anti-aircraft guns to missiles to shoulder-fired rockets to, in one case, two um, <laughs> guided missile launchers uh, they call the Stugna. That's essentially something where you fire it and you it's wire-guided, I believe. So you hold the crosshair on the target and it hits it. Uh, these helicopters just sit there in the air and you're doing the equivalent of pointing a laser pointer at them for 10 seconds until the missile hits and blows them out of the sky. So they haven't been doing a very good job with it. They've lost at minimum from visible casual visible reports at least 10% of their um, modern helicopter fleet, the, the KA-52s. They have a number of others that have been used. What we've seen lately is interesting in uh, the use of their aircraft. They do seem to feel the pinch, um, whether it's because they've lost a lot of trained pilots, whether it's because they're realizing that the whole battlefield is awash in anti-air systems. It's unclear. But rather than doing what you would expect someone to do with a helicopter, if you ever watched um, you know, Apocalypse Now or something where it kind of goes along in the air, aims down and kills everything below it, They're standing a distance back from the battlefield, flying in real quick, pitching up. So now their nose is pointing at the sky, shooting off a bunch of rockets, and then popping flares and running away. Now, there is some reasons for it. There are ways that they can set their computer so it targets an area and then they're firing missiles. But at this point, you're basically using your very expensive, very fuel-consumptive helicopter as a really crappy uh, rocket artillery platform. That's not something you would do if you had full control over the airspace. In areas where Russia does have control over the airspace or air supremacy, um, specifically Mariupol, we have seen extensive use of uh, fighter bombers, even some of their heavier bomber fleet, um, the Tu-22s. I, I don't know what uh, you would compare them to in America, like a B-1, something like that. Um, some aviation buff can probably correct me. But they've been using those with heavier bombs to pound the Azovstal plant into rubble. And, um, yeah, does that answer your question? Uh, MP, does that answer your question? Uh, uh- And Nico, he may not be able to hear you. We had this a couple of times earlier today. That Nico, uh, can you hear us? Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. Okay. I, by the way, uh, language. I wouldn't compare the Tu-22 with a B-1 by any stretch of the imagination. What's what's a better NATO analog for that craft? 
F one eleven. Yeah, it's just, it's, uh, but yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> by design, by hope, but but not by functionality. Are we in agreement? Hundred percent. It's it's you know, it's a it's a supersonic bomber. It's not quite as large as some of others Russian strategic bombers. Those like the Tu ninety five would be more comparable to like a B fifty two. We haven't seen those used in carpet bombing yet. We have seen them used for uh, air launch of cruise missiles against Ukrainian towns. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, my hypothesis is that Russia is just running out of their ground-based missiles, or at least the ones they had nearby. Um, they fired somewhere in excess of 2,200 rockets into Ukraine at this point, and early reports said they were only expecting to use about 300 for their shock and awe campaign, and then they would storm in in three days. Obviously, we're, you know, seven, eight times that now. So they're having to rely on more exotic missile systems, uh, things fired by submarines in the Black Sea. The Black Sea fleet has really just become a missile launching platform at this point, as well as a number of these air launch cruise missiles. I see we have a couple more questions. Uh, there is, by the way, um, my friends always called it a flying trash can, but that's a different thing. I don't know who so- is up next. Cajun or I'll be happy to go. Uh, although I feel like I've been talking a bit too much today. Um, no, it's all right. If you have a question for language, it's great. Uh, it would be interesting to keep track of uh, the reason I asked about the second team and guards is that that re- that uh, division has an interesting history. When Stalin died in 1952, 1953, the team and guards were actually put in the streets of Moscow to make sure there wasn't any unrest when they had the attempted a coup in 1991, the Taman Guards were put in the streets of Moscow along with the 4th Guards Tank Division that you mentioned um, uh, to uh, in the attempt to overthrow the government. Uh, what's interesting is that a tank commander from the Taman Guards actually turned his tanks around instead of pointing the tanks at the White House, pointed them away from the Russian White House. And upon one of the 2nd Taman Guards tanks is where... Uh, Boris Yeltsin gave his famous speech that kind of catapulted him onto the world stage. And, uh, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart shortly after that. And the 1993 coup, again, it was the Taman Guards and the 4th Guards Tank Division that uh, attacked the, the very same White House uh, in the attempted overthrow of the Yeltsin government, which is intriguing what's interesting about these two divisions is that they were not used or Taman guards in particular were not used in either chechen war because they were required i expect at the time uh as a politically reliable capable force of of preventing a coup within moscow uh they've been in kupyansk and it's believed that that t90 that got killed might have belonged to them which would put them somewhere at the front lines they're not at least some of them are not guarding the streets in Moscow or no, no, have no, the capabilities. No, 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 bear with me, language. What I'm saying is in the past, that was their role. They were not used in either Chechen war. And the fact that they're being used in the in this Ukrainian war is really interesting in a couple of ways. It, it means that uh, uh, Putin doesn't feel he needs tank divisions to remain in power as the previous governments did, or even he himself felt like he did in the second Chechen war. The other thing that's interesting about it is these are premier tank formations within the Russian military. They don't get any better than the second Taman guards and the fourth guards tank division. That is is as good as the Russians get 
if these guys are getting creamed in Ukraine, as they apparently are, that's evidence that there, there is no better unit in the Russian military. And they're interesting to keep track of from that standpoint, because whatever fate they are suffering, the rest of the Russian military is doing much, uh, uh, is going to have a much harder time than they will. So thank you. Well, well three of one of their platoons of T-90Ns got away. One got banged up. That's a good sign. Let's see where the others are. Right. There, there would be a, there, two units to keep track of is, is what I would suggest. Like, which they, they're, they're an interesting group. They're not like the rest of the army is my point. Okay. So I agree with you. thank you. Um, we've seen that they've been grouped with a couple others. Um, it may be if you have a little bit more background on them, specifically the first guards tank regiment, which I believe is active in the area of Izium, as well as the um, second guards motor rifle division. And then uh, the 37th Motor Rifle Brigade um, and some of and more tank brigades from the Eastern Military District. Uh, is, those were the ones that were reported to be in vicinity of each other, somewhere to the northeast um, of Izium and then pushing down. It seems that they were sent more to the Izium push. I actually do have a map here that shows um, Russian forces positions. If uh, you give me a couple seconds to try and pull up and see where those are believed to be now um, and see if uh, there's any other units that are alongside them that you might know more about, especially some of their historical significance, like you said. You know, these are not, for lack of a better term, these are not the scrubs of the Russian army. These are guys who are nominally, allegedly very capable, and we're seeing that they're not, at least right. not in this kind of war. It, exactly. This is the cream of the crop, without a doubt, that's in the First Guards Tank Army, you know, where where the second time and guards and fourth guards tank division are and whatever constituent, uh, whatever uh, brigades happen to be with them. That should be the, the, the very best that the Russians have. And we can talk about this offline as well. Language. I don't want to dominate the conversation. No, no, I think, I think it's very interesting. Honestly, it's definitely something worth uh, looking more into. And I really do appreciate you bringing it up. Let me um, see if I can pull and some Cajun, of the forces in the meantime. I've, we are receiving we are receiving more than thirty messages on this topic already. So please keep going. Yeah, I'm still trying to pull up uh, the map here with the Russian military units on it. Um, I need to figure out where I stuck that. But uh, yeah, and in the meantime, while we kind of circle back to that, um, if we have any other questions, we have uh, Jack and Epsilon. If you have questions yeah, for language, please go. Uh, yeah, I I have a I'm very interested in attrition of. Um, Russian artillery, and if we're seeing any, the question is, are we seeing any increased attrition of Russian artillery, either through, you know, the beginning of counter-battery fire or, you know, lack of um, ammunition, but um, what is the situation with regard to Russian artillery? Well, they continue to use it. Um, that is one of the few things that Russia has been consistently effective in using. I mean, it's, it's not a complex system. They just keep running uh, more shells to it. They've utilized that considerably in this war. They continue to use it along the front lines. It seems that, in general, Russia has no desire to engage in urban warfare. Um, they've seen what that looks like for them. As a result, instead, they just step outside of cities and shell them into the ground. Um, that's generally what we're seeing. I, mean, I don't know how degraded they are. I guess my question regards, you know, the 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 you know beginning to the the usage of them. You know the M777s, or you know any of the new Western artillery in 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 counter battery activities. Are we beginning to see any of that, 
or is it still too early? We've heard reports of it. There hasn't been any pictures or videos, nor really should we be getting any at this time. Um, it says counter battery. Uh, you can think about it as really a high stakes game of battleship. When um, your enemy shoots, you can find out where they are with a number of different things. And uh, then if they miss their first shot or their salvo or they're hitting the wrong area, and we've seen them do that a couple of times um, because the Ukrainians have gotten very good at called shooting and scooting so they they shoot and then they move and then when the russians who can you know also figure out where the ukrainians are firing from return fire or bring an airstrike down they're just bombing uh, empty fields uh, and there's some elements of uh, nato intelligence that are helping with that but here we've seen a number of cases where ukraine or russian artillery is being killed while it's still deployed um which implies to me that they're not able to do the shoot and scoot nearly as quickly especially with their fixed artillery and there's been a few where, like, they've really entrenched themselves. It doesn't look like they had time to figure out that they were being shot at or that they were trying to pack up. And then there's just a bunch of dead Russians around, uh, some smoking trucks and a few artillery guns. So it's a very long way of saying we know they have some capability for counter-battery fire. Has all the counter-battery equipment from the West arrived yet? Honestly, I have no idea. I'd suspect that it's starting to filter in in some way, shape, or form, though. Yeah, one of the other aspects of a counter-battery situation, as I understand it, is that it just makes artillery crews nervous as well to, you know, you know, if you think every time you fire off your guns, you're going to be a target, um, you have a different operational kind of, you know, situation. The language, do you mind if I just jump in here really quick? Absolutely. So, so uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if, if I come through broken, my internet's a little spotty where I am. Um, I will just address this when it comes to counter-battery fire and, and the like, for especially on the Ukrainian side. There's two components to that. There's the artillery piece itself. So think of the M777, right, or the Paladin that we saw got dropped off probably about a month ago. But it's keeping the ammunition ready at their at their disposal, right? It's one thing to have the gun. It's another thing to have a consistent amount of ammunition. So that way you can switch from counter-battery fire to assisting ground movements at the same time. Counter-battery fire isn't what you might consider to be too uh, intensive in terms of the number of rounds because they're not moving around, right? But what does tend to get intensive is when you're actually shooting at Russian ground targets. So think tanks, BMPs, IFVs, you know, troops in the field, right? Supply trucks. That gets very uh, ammunition expensive, if you will. And what we're seeing is we're seeing that the Ukrainians are having a much better time getting bullets to the gun, so to speak, than the Russians are. And so in regards to your question about counter-battery fire, yes, we're seeing a little bit more uh, success, but I want to caution you that counter-battery fire isn't just against these these howitzers, right, these toad pieces. Counter-battery fire can be a Paladin. It can be an M777. It can be a suicide drone that's targeting an MLRS truck, right? And so what we're seeing more steadily now coming on coming online is not just one type of counter-battery, i.e., say, the D-30, right, which is, the, which is essentially like, you know, the Russian howitzer, if you will. It's a really ancient piece of crap. That is one thing. But you're seeing a much wider menu of choices when it comes to the Ukrainians and what they use for the counter-battery fire. And that, I think, is what's going to tell the tale, right? The menu increases, but then the, the logistics behind that to keep the guns firing is the multiplier, right? It's what really changes the game. Because if you carry two tons of ammunition, 
that's great. That'll help you out for maybe a, a couple of days, maybe a day if you're a battery. But then what do you do the next day and then the next day? And so that way the Ukrainians don't have to pick and choose whether or not they're going to be like, well, we only have so many rounds. We can either shoot at the artillery or we can shoot at ground troops, right? You want to give them the option to be able to do counter battery fire, you know, for half the day and then be able to switch to, to do supporting fires for advancing infantry. And that's where it's a subtle difference. It's not apparent. You can't see it. But an artillery crew on reduced ammunition has to pick when it can fire. But if it doesn't have any problem with ammunition, that it's just going to keep on going all day long until obviously the barrel wears out, right? You don't want to fire until the barrel melts. But that's what really changes the game is having consistent supply lines in a wide range of menus to choose from when it comes to this type of uh, artillery usage. I'm able to pull up some maps here. So it appears that this mostly comes from Jomini of the West for some of the uh, more specific Russian troop locations that it's to the northwest of Izium um, along really just due south and along the uh, area that Ukraine forces are trying to push towards their supply lines is where you have the second guards uh, motor rifle division that um, Cajun was discussing as well as the fourth guards tank division. Um, a number of those guys. Uh, and then the 35th combined arms army in general is in that area. And then the third motor rifle division um, and 47th guards. And correct me if I'm wrong, if it's the guards tank division or the guards motorized rifle regiment, those are ones that are usually around Moscow. They're in the central military district. Is that accurate? Well, the Taman guards were a Moscow deployed unit. Uh, the second Taman guards were the fourth guards were as well. Uh, to be a guards unit, you it's a, it's an honorary. Uh, um, <laughs> it's supposed to be for combat, apparent. You know, it's an honorary uh, title for units that have performed well in combat. Uh, it's kind of been made a mockery since uh, Putin gave a infantry division a guards title for apparently raping and murdering a bunch of civilians in Buka and Irpin. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily designate that the unit is around Moscow, although the case of the second guards and the fourth guards, historically, they were. Thank you. But um, I'll, I'll send you over and we can continue it in the DMs and whatnot. But if there's any other units that you see there that might have some historical significance, I'd always be interested in hearing about them, frankly. Perfect. I'll, I'll send you some info. All right. Thank you very much. And we have a couple of quick questions from the audience. Maybe we'll just hit those real quick. I see we have some hands up. Um, first one is um, – oh, one is actually from Matt. Language. Language. Oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, water will scare, um, probably escalate you up to – calls because I need to do some reading and have family matters also to attend to. So I'll be back later. All righty? All right. Sounds good. We'll see you later. Um, a question from Nat Sai 22 um, Some a, a, a couple of updates from Kharkiv. Um, that might be wonderful. Between 6.15 and 7.15 EST, uh, I know between 5 and 6 Eastern Standard Time, uh, we should have uh, Vinman, uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Alexander Vinman here, uh, Great speaker. He's going to have a lot of information for us. So that time slot will probably be occupied, but afterwards it's entirely possible. Um, specifically regarding the extent of looting by Russian forces in Saudi Saltiv, situation with the dam and fighting on Kharkiv. I mean, if you've got time now, I'd love to hear it. If you want to save it for later, that's fine too. From Vishnikovsky, is there any evidence that switchblades and other kamikaze drones have arrived at the front to make a significant difference? We've heard that they are being utilized. We haven't seen video evidence of it. Frankly, these are not just things you pass out to every single soldier. They tend to be more with um, 
special operations forces and whatnot, just the way that they're used, you have to be pretty close. So we may not see videos of them for some time, but we know that they're at least somewhat capable. And then there's some hypotheses that larger uh, explosive payload versions of these, including the Phoenix Ghost or whatever uh, was rapidly designed and sent over, are being utilized to hit some uh, Russian targets in the uh, eastern Donbass. Um, and then you know, on that uh, from Capdon, have the Russians' progress stopped because they're being thrown back, or is it because their offensive hasn't been as frequent or strong? So it's a little bit of both, uh, probably more so the former than the latter. The Russian offensives have been fairly constant. We've seen many more of them in recent weeks than we have before. They've been relatively ineffective, especially long areas where Ukraine has prepared defensive lines. And um, then they are being turned around and pushed back by uh, Ukraine forces. And with that, that's about all the questions I have. Um, I think we have Ypsilon Kappa to you. Yes. Um, hello. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Perfect. So I was. Um, I have two questions. So the first one is: um, Do you think that's uh, the recent uh, um, gains around Kharkiv from uh, the Ukraine um, uh, military will uh, get uh, Krupiansk? That I think uh, it's a nice uh, uh, logistical hub for the Russian to to. Um, get it close to artillery um, range, and you think that will uh, matter in the offensive that is going uh, to is taking place right now around the Isium for the clip, crippling of logistics. Yes, it will be very. It's definitely a target. That is the main hub when Russian forces bring supplies, equipment, manpower from Russia, um, specifically from the Belgorod region. They have a lot of roads that are fairly safe. Um, they all pretty much run through the town of Kupyansk, K-U-P-Y, K-U-P-I, A-N-S-K, depending on how you want to spell it. Um, from there, they then head down south along the P-79 road. All this is fairly well uh, back in Russian lines um, through the town of Borova and then over to Izium. Ukrainian forces still have a ways to go to get there. Um, they're not within range enough to menace it totally yet. The town to look for there, um, if they can get to it, would be the town of Shevchenkov. That's S-H-E-V-C-H-E-N-K-O-V. It's due west of Kupiansk, if you're looking at a map. From there, it gets a lot easier because then Kupiansk is only about, I mean, it's still a distance. It's still 30 kilometers away. However, there are certain artillery systems that have been provided to Ukraine that would be able to reach that distance. That's going to be, I think, where you see the major cutoff. Uh, it's obvious that Ukraine's perspective is not just to push forces away from Kharkiv, but also to menace the supply lines of Russian forces. So far, they're able to do so along the MO3 highway, which runs uh, north-south from Kharkiv to Izium. But the Russians haven't been using that as much, So it's especially because the Ukrainians are there. Um, Kupiansk is not something that's going to happen in the next days or even probably weeks, unless there's a mass Russian failure or a mass Ukrainian offensive. But that does seem to be the target. If and when Kupiansk is at the very least menaced by Ukrainian artillery to the point where Russians can't drive vehicles through there, then I think you'll know it because you'll start to see a lot of strange behavior by um, Russian forces who realize that, oh, we only got 30 percent of the ammo we were supposed to get today. Something's wrong. And um, my second question is about uh, um, the aid that is coming to Ukraine. In your opinion, um, 
there is some critical system that uh, the West could provide, but it's not provided at the moment? Yes, I mean, there's always more stuff that can be provided. Uh, the good news is, while democracy is a great system for a lot of ways, it also can be a very slow system. Um, these A lot of these are weapon systems that should have been sent over to Ukraine months before the war started. Now we're starting to finally see them. The Lend-Lease Act from the United States and with the United States political will kind of leading the charge here, I think you will see, um, as well as a number of other NATO nations, UK, Germany, um, Slovakia especially, sending heavier and heavier equipment, not just planes, but uh, long-range artillery and rocket artillery, stuff that's been specifically asked for. Because if you can shoot your enemy from further away more accurately, more quickly, with bigger explosives, then you're probably going to win that fight, right? Um, so right now, if you could call it a bit more of like a, uh, you know, pistol duel between artilleries, if we're going to go down this analogy, what Ukraine is asking for is a sniper rifle um, that can shoot fast, right? As they start to get those, their ability to win the artillery war in the East will continue to improve. They've already done tremendous things with drones and spotting and what have you. But the longer range stuff that they get, the better off they'll be, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it, this makes uh, completely sense. But uh, um, I'm sorry to ask again. Uh, do you think there is a specific system that uh, right now Ukraine needs uh, and uh, the West is still not providing? So there's actually a couple. Um, there's one called the HIMARS, the M142. Um, stands for high mobility rocket something or other. Um, they can shoot pretty far. I want to say their range at maximum is like 300 miles. Those haven't necessarily been given yet. Um, there is talk about M270s, which are the precursor to that being used. Um, these are same rocket artillery because there's only so far you can push a bullet, right? Um, and there's things like the Excalibur shell, which will make life easier. But rocket artillery can just go much further. And as compared to some of the systems that we've seen, Russia using, like the Grods and whatnot, that fire a number of small rockets. Some of these are essentially ballist, you know, very small ballistic missile platforms, so they can shoot one large missile very accurately for very large distance. This would also allow Ukraine to target uh, Russian command and control positions, as well as some fuel supplies. And these are the ones that, even just today, the commander-in-chief of the Ukraine Armed Forces, Zaluzhny, um, spoke with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in America, Um, saying how they specifically need these two. So that's the M270 and the M142 um, and their missile, their rocket artillery launching systems. Th those are the big ones that they've asked for. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'll see the uh, space to whoever has questions, but uh, thank you. All right, we have some other questions here from um, Daniel Perkins. A question about Hassan's surrounding areas. I was expecting an attack on the city, but it seems to have gone quiet in the last week. Is a stable line? Are there villages exchanging still? It, the Russians have been entrenching. Um, this is a good time to kind of talk about Russian force composition and whatnot in the area. There's a lot less Russian troops around Kherson than there are around um, in the Izium Donbass region. Some, they're saying that there's only like seven battalions. Um, so somewhere on the order of, if they're at full strength, 7,000 guys. Now, there's probably more that we don't know about, but that's not a lot to hold the whole front all the way from the Black Sea over to the Dnieper River. Um, they've said that there's about 160 kilometers of 
uh, front line that they need to cover. Obviously, they can't cover every single inch. But that means that for every one of these battalions, they have to cover about 23 kilometers. Um, so we've seen the ability for Ukrainians to go way far, in, way far into Kherson, come back before the Russians can figure out what's going on and assemble some kind of quick reaction force. It's actually the largest distance between any battalion group that we've seen. Um, but it's, I also believe that the Ukrainians have not been committing massive amounts in, uh, in that region. There's not an equal number. Um, there, there's definitely more Ukrainian forces there than Russian, but it's not such a numerical advantage at this point that's worth it to try storming the city. Uh, though they have continued to maneuver against Russian forces, especially to the northwest of the city in the area of Chernobyl, and just degrade, destroy Russian command posts, Russian supplies, Russian aircraft. Uh, it appears that right now the biggest bulk of Ukrainian forces is sent over to the east um, in order to stop this advance by Izium. If I was a betting man, I'd say once the Izium push has been resolved in one way, shape, or form, then we'll start to see more offensive operations on Kherson. Also, because if Russian troops start to lose any more people in the Zaporizhia or, or Izium regions, then where are they going to pull forces from? They might decide, okay, well, we're going to pull some of the stuff back from Kherson. So but that's kind of a general statement on that. Hopefully it answers the question. It's also important to know, because um, you know, we can run through these specific regions. When we say battalion tactical groups, that's the unit, the military unit, the Russian um, army has been using in this war generally they're supposed to have at full capacity about 800 guys that's not 800 people pulling triggers that's really is only about two to three hundred of those are actually people who can engage in you know frontline combat um you know maybe a couple another hundred or so more who are you know riding vehicles and doing mechanized operations they've also been sufficiently degraded even before the war there's a number of these that were saying that they were at a hundred percent um readiness when in reality they're close to 60 percent that was an extreme example, but a lot of them have been somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of max. And now after two months of war and being degraded, the number's a lot less than. So when we say battalion tactical groups, it doesn't mean that every single one of these is necessarily 800 people, but um, it's still worthwhile to just have a general figure. So in Kherson, uh, between the area to the southwest of Kherson that meets the Black Sea, um, you know, Alexandrovka, all the way up to really the border of Kherson province, where it meets the Dnieper on the northeast, there's about seven battalion tactical groups. Um, like we said, they're trying to cover like 23 kilometers. They're not doing so great. Uh, Zaporizhia, which is further to the east, and that includes the region where you have Mariupol and uh, some possible attacks towards Kriviri and whatnot, there's about uh, 13 battalion tactical groups for 130 kilometers. So that's about twice the amount of folks, and they have half the amount of area that they need to cover compared to the guys in Harrison. Moving further to the Northeast, and you'll start to see a trend here, you have, there's approximately 20, 27 battalion tactical groups in the Southeast. So now again, we're doubling what we saw in Zaporizhia over a similar amount of territory. So those guys only have to cover about, you know, four or five kilometers a pop. Um, so that's a much more solid line of defense, line of attack. Uh, Ukraine forces can't slip through nearly as easily. And these forces can be supported by their allies pretty quickly. Moving up towards Severodonetsk, Izium, we're also seeing real large numbers, somewhere on the order of 40 battalions there. Um, and that's, that's a very wide area, kind of stretches up to where you were talking about before with that push 
by Ukrainian forces towards the MO3 highway. Um, there's about 40 battalion tactical groups there. It's unclear how many of those are in full condition, how many are wounded. A lot of these guys came from the previous offenses north of Kiev, where they took substantial losses. But there, they're only having to worry about two or three kilometers between each of these units. Um, at 160 kilometers, there's 40 you know, battalions. That's, you know, that's a much stronger defensive or offensive line. And then finally, up by Kharkiv proper, they've moved a lot of units away. It appears that there's only about five battalion tactical groups to the east near that city of uh, Sari Saltiv uh, for 100 kilometers. So they've got it. It's the same situation as you had in Harsan. They're covering a very wide area with a very with an insufficient number of troops, and they're able to get picked off more easily. But I see we have a question from Jan Wunsch to you. Hey, thank you for for letting me ask my question. Um, we've seen we've seen Boris Johnson. Uh, um, telephone with Zelensky and trying to uh, figure out how to stop um, uh, Russian long-range uh, or or short short-range um, weapons from the air or even rockets um, from uh, from Russia. Um, and so my question is: um, Of course, we've we've seen uh, rocket launches uh, as far as Lviv from russia and my question would be um how could you defend that if if you even could defend that uh, as a ukraine entity and um what what would have to be delivered to kind of uh, um yeah fix that in in the defense of uh, air defense f- uh, f- for ukraine thank you so it's a good question um Long-range air defense systems, things that can actually intercept uh, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, are what's really sorely needed. Yes, they can. All, if you can shoot down a cruise missile, you can also shoot down a plane, so they are multi-use. The S-300 system is one that's been talked about a lot uh, because these systems are very technical. They take a lot of training to know how to use. Uh, it's not like we can just send over Patriot missile launchers and have them up and running in a week or two. It would be months. Um, so... The S-300 is the big one. Uh, there's, that's a Soviet-made system. As a result, there's not a tremendous amount of them in the stockpiles of NATO countries or NATO allies. But at least one of them has been sent and is, uh, I believe that one's from Slovakia, who also made some comments about possibly sending over a large number of their air force in exchange for being protected by a neighbor. And uh, that one's somewhere in the south, either near Harrison or Zaporizhia. But that's the big one is the S-300 systems. There are others, um, missile defense, but those are going to be able to protect a much smaller area, and they're not going to be as effective. An S-300 can hit something that's, you know, 100 kilometers away much more accurately than something that can only hit some, you know, 10, 15 kilometers away. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Of course, we have seen S-300s from Slovakia, I believe, delivered. Um, Is that... uh... That seems to be the case that only um, cruise missiles or, uh, uh, yeah, long long range rockets, could, I, I believe, it wouldn't have to fuel to to reach Lviv. Um, so, is it the case that uh, web, um, only cruise missiles can um, reach um, kind of uh, western Ukraine, or is it even possible that there might be some kind of uh, stratospheric bomber? Um, over Ukraine 
um, that's not in range for S300. Thank you. So most of what we've seen has been cruise missiles. Technically, um, if the Russians decide that they want to lose a lot of their air fleet and commit a massive amount, which is something we haven't seen, uh, there's different perspectives on this. This is simply my perspective. Um, because they'd be spotted beforehand and, you know, they're not going to fly them all the way from Moscow without, you know, somebody in NATO alerting Ukraine and having the air defenses set up. It really is just cruise missiles and long-range ballistic missiles. Not all of these are fired by planes. So the Black Sea Fleet has a number of them. Uh, the caliber of cruise missiles have also been used to devastating effect, unfortunately, among the civilian population. Uh, they also have some much longer-range cruise missiles that can hit things in Lviv, and they actually use those couple weeks ago when they blew up uh, the airport and the, whatchamacallit, it was an aircraft maintenance or aircraft uh, repair depot nearby. Six missiles were fired from damn near Sevastopol, which is a long distance away, um, to finally hit uh, Lviv. But, you know, that, you're talking somewhere on the order of like 700 kilometers, 800 kilometers, which was um, massive. And they have that capability, but they don't have a ton of those. Uh, there's a lot of electronics to go into these precision-guided munitions, and they're just not super plentiful right now in Russia. They haven't been since the sanctions. As far as stratospheric bombers, I believe those can be hit by an S-300. I'd be astonished if they can't, um, like the Tu-95s. But that would be such a large air operation, and we all know how well Russia does with large combined arms operations, that the juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze. If they had enough of a fighter screen and they brought up dozens of fighters and, you know, tens of bombers and they started carpet bombing stuff. Yeah, they could. It's technically possible, but they would take a lot of losses along the way for very minimal gain when instead they can lob cruise missiles that are getting intercepted themselves and move much faster than these heavy bombers. Um, and they, they just fire those wholesale. One's a lot cheaper than the other. It's a lot cheaper to lose a cruise missile because it gets shot down than to lose you know, a bomber and the crew and everything behind that. Yeah, I figured so. Um, so, um, is the only solution, might the only solution be, uh, to kind of weigh down that depot, uh, coming from, um, coming from the Black Sea, um, to kind of, yeah, inevitably fix, fix the, um, air defense, um, for Ukraine. Oh, I mean, can you, can you even weigh, uh, uh how big the depot for, uh, Russian, Uh, caliber uh, cruise missiles might be? I have no idea uh, exactly how large it is. I don't think anybody really does. What we do know is that they have used an increasing amount of them. The original projections were that they want to use a total of about 300 guided missiles um, for a shock and awe campaign that they would then take Kiev in a couple days. That obviously hasn't worked. The number now is somewhere closer to 22, 2300 or more. Um, I imagine their stockpiles are getting low. They're not going to run out anytime soon, but seeing them move from longer-range missiles to shorter-range missiles like the Tashka U, of which they have many in storage, would be a benefit in its own right because then it means they won't be able to conduct these deep strikes on Ukrainian positions. Um, but unfortunately, I can't give you like a date or how many more they need to fire before they're out. Okay, still very interesting. Thank you very much. We've got Craig back up here, hopefully uh, some better Wi-Fi. Um, over to you. We, you know, I don't know how much you call what we're talking about, but we were discussing some of Russian supplies in the east, supply concerns there, as well as uh, missile strikes in the western part of Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, never stay at a Hilton, 
Um, I will assure you it's the worst Wi-Fi I've ever had in my life. Um, so I, I want, I've gotten a lot of questions and for those that have asked, yes, I'm fine. I'm just traveling. I've been traveling for the past couple of days, so everything's fine. Um, thank you for your questions. Um, I would just say this, I've gotten a lot of questions regarding these, these rail line strikes that we've seen in the Western part of the country. So I kind of want to just get this out of the way. The, the strikes that we're seeing on these electrical substations, right. Will affect passenger traffic, right. It doesn't necessarily affect freight traffic because freight traffic uses diesel trains, so you don't necessarily need an electric route. But to to people that have tried to say, well, that's fine. The fact is that you have electrical trains that are stuck on the track, that are stuck on the tracks, and you need to drag that to a place where it can either clear the rails so a train going the opposite way that's diesel can can move on down those tracks, or you just got to get the electricity back on, right? And so it does take time. It's not instantaneous, right? You, you can send a, a train back east, right? That's perfectly normal. But if that commuter train, depending on where it's stopped, if there's not like an off-ramp that it can go onto and get out of the way, then there's no point, right? There's just no point. You can send a diesel down there uh, to, try and, to try and kind of drag it forward, but it takes time to get that diesel done because then you kind of have to almost like kind of almost go in reverse right depending on where you are on those rails so you need to back that train up you know 10 miles so to speak going in reverse to hook it up um, unless you have like i had said that kind of that that parallel track where you can drag it off and then rehook the line and then drag it forward clear the rails and then you can send somebody back down the other way that is diesel to keep the refugee uh you know momentum up right people who want to get out can get out um what what I'm seeing, yeah, Tim, did you have a question? I'm, I'm more than happy to stop if there's something so you don't lose your thought. And no, I was just going to back you up, uh, Craig, 100%. Because um, as you guys know, I'm an intercity train driver here in the UK. Um, we had a big storm here in February, uh, which I was out and about in. Uh, and we had overhead wires come down on my route, but I was driving diesel train. Uh, I had to go rescue the passengers off an electric train. Uh, which they then had to move with a diesel train to get it clear of the line, but it took 36 hours. So <laughs> you're exactly right. Yeah, and so and so a lot of people are saying, well, this is a war on refugees, right? Where they're trying to they're trying to harm refugees. Well, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, we know that Russia is a bunch of of brutal people, right? We we've seen Herpine, we've seen Bucha, but part of this attack on substations is gumming up the lines of the works, right? Because as you move a train west. You also have a timetable that says train X moving west is going to get here by this time. That means that train moving east, train Y moving east can leave by this time. Well, now it. Is this why you don't stay the holiday in? Craig, do we still have you there? Looks like we might be having some connection difficulties. We'll get him back up here as soon as we can. Um, in the mean point, we'll uh, be able to hold it down uh, with some questions from the audience. We'll just run through these as quick as possible. John Bush, what's the situation in the East after one or two months? I can't see the future. Hopefully, uh, at the very least, stalled battle lines. Ideally, uh, Ukrainian uh, menacing of Russian supply lines and pushing them back from the Izium advance. Uh, from Luis, question. Um, seems like yeah, we might be having some technical difficulties here. Uh, there's read report from Reuters that in U.S. there's a shortage of stingers and javelins. Um, they already gave one third of the stock to the Ukrainians. Could this be a game changing if U.S. now limits the aid of these items? As far as I know, in the last aid delivery, there were no javelins or stingers. I 
won't be able to comment on what our production capability is. I know we do have a production capability, and it, Judge, you wouldn't have the president of the United States go to that factory if suddenly we were going to cut off sending those, right? So I, I don't think that there's any real risk of them running out. And we also have a tremendous amount in storage, numbers in units, and then there are some alternative systems that we can always send as well. There's reports of that thousands of job offers for the military in Russia have been published in job search websites. They seem to be searching for people they can send to Ukraine. Do you know something about that? There's been increased efforts to recruit people, uh, reaching out to reservists, reaching out to people who had been you know, discharged from the military, saying, hey, we'll pay you if you come back. Those have been resoundingly ineffective. A lot of people are realizing that it's a bad time, um, so they haven't been doing that. Let's see. Uh, from knockers. Um, uh, regarding seeing how there seems to be either huge explosions or small shells that seem not to be going off much. Seen small holds in building and roads, but not the same destructive force. Feels like they're running out of medium-sized bombs. I I don't think they're necessarily running out of anything like that at this point. It's just a matter of what they can bring to bear. Um, it's either artillery or you know tank fire or cannon fire. So it's very difficult to gauge destruction based on the size of a hole because if you shoot into dirt, there's going to be a much bigger hole than if you shoot into you know a concrete building. From Carl Eddy, is there anything on Ukraine versus Russian speed and capability to build reserves? You, it's going to be a challenge for both. Ukraine has had a head start. The Territorial Defense Force, which is everything from people who were combat veterans to folks who just picked up a rifle day one or two of the war, they are becoming increasingly trained. And there's, it's a lot easier to train and motivate people as a reserve force when their country is being invaded than when you're trying to invade another country and losing. So... I would estimate that while technically Russia has the capability to bring more reserves to bear, they would be dramatically ineffective in the same way that we've seen from the DPR and LPR forces who are given steel helmets and bolt-action rifles and then just sent to die. Um, and then uh, from my spirit, did the Stary Salty Bridge go down? It looks like Ukraine holds the area there. I believe the Stary Salty Bridge, um, which is to the east of Kharkiv, was actually destroyed some time ago. Um, but beyond that, uh, I don't know if, you know, Russians are back in the area uh, or rather destroyed themselves. It was destroyed to block the river off. There's only so many Russian battalions in that region, but I believe that bridge has been down at least for a couple of days, if not a month or more. Uh, Craig, do we have you back now? Guess not. We'll, uh, we'll just continue there then. Um, all right. Let's, uh, put from Cajun Exile. Uh, interesting little statement there. Uh, a few updates from around the front. Specifically, uh, Russia did not introduce rubles in Kherson, despite that they announced they were going to. Um, they said that they were going to change the money over. That hasn't happened. Um, there hasn't really been any signs of transition. They're still using Ukrainian currency. And so as much as Russia wants to talk about these areas being you know, brought into the fold of the DPR, LPR, the Russian-backed proxies, it hasn't happened yet. Um, as Ovstal continues to be stormed, there's been intense fighting there. There are still reports the forces inside are alive. Um, the Russians have just been bombing the hell out of it from the top with artillery and rockets and what have you. But as it looks now currently, um, this is the third day of uh, Russian forces attempting to gain entry and engage in underground you know, tunnel warfare, close quarters warfare. And it's, it's a very devastating uh, way to fight. So there are still people alive there. The battle continues, and it continues to be rather rough. Right. Um, beyond that, 
the update, uh, the renewed use of cruise missiles by Russian forces and the Ukrainian uh, chief of staff asking for these long-range uh, rocket artillery is very important to them. And that uh, there's beyond that there's uh, some interesting propaganda we can laugh about for a little bit would be uh, there was a picture of a Ukrainian woman who, when Russian troops came to her town, came out with a Soviet Union flag. And, you know, people were like, oh, you know, we're back. Business, baby. We're going to do it. Turns out not so much the case. Russia has already made a bunch of statues. They set one up in uh, Mariupol, I believe, and not, if not Melitopol the other day. Um, so, so, hey, you know, we're finally coming back together. It turns out the lady is actually in Kiev. Um, old woman, the Ukraine military put out something because people were obviously harassing her, saying, are you a traitor? She goes, no, the Russians came into my village. I've got a Soviet flag because I saw that they destroyed a bunch of other things. I figured if I have this, then they won't kill me. They won't kill my family. Um, her son was able to evacuate and they blew up her house anyway. So she's in Kiev now. But if you start to see more and more stories about uh, the, you know, an old lady with the USSR flag, that's the background. Another interesting and comical piece of Russian propaganda is they say that they found evidence of the Ukrainian military using black magic and practicing Satanism because somebody sprayed like a pentagram on the side of a Ukrainian military base. So there's a, and that's, that's actually getting real traction in Russian media circles about, you know, deals with the devil and blood sacrifice and yada, yada, yada. So uh, it's becoming more and more of a reach on Russian propaganda channels these days. Let's see what else. Um, this is the issue with live updates. Sometimes there's just, you know, it's, there's a lot of information and it's a bit of a fire hose. Um, we do have a couple more speakers up here though. Um, Nina, as well as uh, Mr. Colt, um, GW, if you guys have anything you would like to talk about or any topics you'd like to discuss. And also we finally got Luis back up here. Hi there. Uh, this is, um, uh, Grant from, uh, Scotland. Uh, I wanted to ask, we've seen, um, Obviously, Russia is keen to celebrate the 9th of May uh, in their calendar. Do you think we're going to see something special with regards to the 9th of May from Ukraine uh, to uh, take the shine off that date for them? I hope so. Um, I don't think we're going to see any, you know, bombs in the Moscow parade or, you know, people in the parade turning around and shooting at, uh, you know, Putin. No. But I think we'll probably see some offensives. There's some interesting Ukrainian propaganda going on right now about a countdown on the Kerch Bridge Strait. It's the long, I believe it's the longest bridge in Europe, actually. It's the one that goes from Russia proper to Crimea, and there's a, a countdown that ends on May 9th. So that's got a bunch of people all worried about it. Um, I'm sure there will be something that happens. I, I really can't speculate on what that is, um, but, yeah. Thank you. And then up, got some hands up. Uh, if we can go to Nina Lindfors, please. Hello. <laughs> this is Nina Lindfors. Uh, yeah, somebody mentioned uh, uh, that Reuters uh, uh, had the news about some delivery problems in America of these weapons. Uh, did I get it right? So, yes, I think it was um, specifically that the stock of javelins might be running low. We have a large military stockpile. Our allies have a large military stockpile. Um, it's a stockpile that actually exists in being. It's not been whittled down by corruption. Certainly, I hope no javelins are walking off. So I, I would be surprised if, you know, it suddenly gets degraded and the tap gets turned off. Um, we also know at least 5,000 have been sent so far already, and that's uh, been effective. There's also a number of other similar systems from NATO allies like the U.K., uh, France, etc. I don't think there's any real risk of those running out. Um, quite frankly, 
given just simple math, uh, Ukrainians claim and the U.S. has reported that they're scoring somewhere around 93% of these missiles that are used result in tank kills. Russia does, even if they're using them on every vehicle under the sun, Russia won't be able to keep up. Between the end laws and whatnot, um, if it comes down to the very last bit, Russia will run out of tanks before the Ukrainians run out of missiles. Um, yeah. And then also the, the U.S. president wouldn't go to the Javelin manufacturing factory, take a big press conference with a bunch of launchers behind him, just so then a week later says, sorry, you can't have any more. It wouldn't be politically viable. I'm sure they're running, you know, 24-7 shifts there, if they weren't already. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> what I was actually concerned of, that Reuters <clears throat> gave this uh, news, because we had uh, in Finland, uh, it was called Arrows 22 uh, rehearsal of the army. Juha is listening here, I think. Uh, he knows about this. And uh, Reuters was one of the first ones to release news that uh, when they showed uh, pictures of this, all these tanks on the uh, put on the railway, uh, Reuters said that uh, these tanks are going now to the Finnish border to threaten Russia. And this was uh, Reuters. I mean, uh, <laughs> this is a little bit strange. Uh, that they gave this kind of disinformation and uh, actually put it out. Uh, language learning? Is it, is it okay if I say a few words? Because it was my question. Yeah. Well, I think the dovetails nicely. Oh, th- thank you. I, I had a few technical problems here. I got kicked out three times. I, I don't know why. It's the first time I have s- uh, such issues. Uh, Nina, I, I asked this question because I saw the report from Reuters, but I also saw... Um, uh, reports on CNN uh, where they interviewed military people in the U.S. and they said um, that already one third of that material has been delivered, and uh, yeah, the last um, delivery to Ukraine didn't hit that uh, that weapons anymore, and uh, that's that would be an indicator that they are running low. So that's why I asked. Oh, uh, well, uh, as language uh, uh, said, uh, I, I, I have big doubts that uh, this could be the case in, in the U.S., but of course, you know better. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still interesting. Obviously, there's a supply line on both sides, but let's be very clear here. The ability for the U.S. and NATO allies and the EU in general to produce munitions has not been degraded um, since the war started. It's not likely to be degraded, um, especially compared to what Russia can do. So if it just comes, you know, at the end of the day, war is, you know, actions taken to so that eventually you can sit down at a diplomatic table and negotiate in a way that's favorable. Um, it doesn't mean you have to kill every single, you know, Russian soldier, although, you know, there's some of us uh, here who probably don't have as much of a problem with that, and I'm, I'm not going to, you know talk more on that but the production for russia and the production for the nato is wildly disparate um and the munitions that are being used cost a lot less they still cost tens of thousands of dollars you know seventy-five thousand, i think is the cost of a javelin missile but when it destroys a three to five million dollar tank every time well you're kind of